Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. And today I'm back on the Zoom and I'm really, really happy to be able to speak to Brendan Cowell today. Brendan Cowell is an award-winning writer, director and performer. And his new novel, Plum, is this big-hearted novel about an ex-NRL star whose career's worth of head knocks and hard drinking catches up to him in the form of epileptic fits. And this forces him to make some hard changes um, and to be honest with the people he really cares about in his life. And his little journey to get there is as strange as it is wonderful. I'll just say that. Um, Brendan Cow, thanks for being on the podcast with us. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. Excellent to be here um, on Booktopia. And I'm going to memorise that summary because I'm doing quite a few summaries at the moment of the book. And that was just fantastic. It's, uh, he's, he's quite a character to summarise, Peter, the plum lum. Uh, yeah. He's, I, I guess he's like your muse now. Just, just give us uh, a taste of him, if you will. Like what, what makes him tick? Yeah, well, I think there's kind of two Peter Lums, isn't there? There's there's the one that never took a backward step and then there's the one who's trying to change uh, before it's too late. Um, and Peter the Plum Lum was probably, you know, one of the most terrifying guys you could face on the rugby league field and probably in the pub. Um, if you owed him 100 bucks, you'd probably want to pay it back um, pretty quickly. And... Um, he was a skillful rugby league player. He had grace and he was one of those first rugby league players, you know, to kind of hit and spin and be able to take on the big guys in the middle, but he had the hands of a halfback as well. And, um, but he didn't leave anything in the tank, you know, he went a hundred miles an hour and, and because of those head knocks um, and that fearless way of playing sport and living life, uh, he kind of, um, the carnage, was always going to catch up with him, and and it does in the form of an epileptic fit when he's he drags out bags, he drags planes out onto the tarmac at, at the Qantas Airport, which is a very common job for rugby league players after um, football who don't want to go into the commentary box in the media, and 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 that is Peter Lum, like he he doesn't want to be on Channel Nine talking stats and big nights. He wants to hide. He he fears people, but then you find out. Later, that's also because he can't remember their name um, and that his brain's all broken and he keeps having these seizures and as a, as a um, direct, um, you know, kind of caused by the, the, the many concussions in, in facing life that way. Um, but as he comes to see in this journey that it's the emotional stuff he left behind too, uh, the carnage of his choices and, of, and he learns from his kind of uh, ghostly visitors. Um, as the doors of his mind open, in come these, um, he starts to see things and see people and have conversations and starts to kind of regret um, a lot of his choices and and takes a bit of a, a journey of thinking, maybe I could have a second go at life and maybe I could repair a few. Um, as he falls in love with his brain, after, a, after kind of 50 years of beating the shit out of his body and brain, he starts to develop a passion for it. That's a beautiful way of phrasing it. And, and I can tell just from hearing you talk there that NRL itself is, is, is a passion for you or, or something you certainly know a lot about. Uh, did, you, did you grow up in a rugby household? Yeah, rugby league was, was everything in Cronulla and 
you know, I was handed a football at the age of four um, and the idea was that you'd play for the Sharks and, you know, I played a few rep games. But then as guys got bigger, um, you know, I, st- I I was a pretty fear- fearless tackler and I broke my nose a number of times. I've got no cartilage in my nose here. And, and um, but as I, as I grew into my teens, uh, suddenly the emotional pain of the arts started to become more attractive to me than the physical and brutal pain of sport. <laughs> and I transitioned into theatre uh, because I thought the guys just got more and more massive and I didn't have it in me. You know, I didn't have... What I lacked to become a great football player was talent and courage. Um, but I had those in the creative arts, so I went over there. Um, but I've always loved the combination of brutality and grace um, that happens in on the rugby league field, the way... Um, guys go at each other and and I think it's very similar to the way we we do that in in theatre and film and acting and so I wanted to kind of dispel dispel the myth of the two males the kind of you know sensitive arty type and and the Aussie thug and because I am kind of both of them and I think they have a lot of crossover. Yeah there's that's that's definitely you know thinking about you as the author behind this novel as a you know a, a presence on the screen and and a career you know writer and director, uh, and it's a it's a story about rugby. You know, I, I couldn't help but but think on those lines of you know contrasting the those big lights and the the fame and the adrenaline and the and the courage that it takes to be that red blooded bloke on the field and and to do the same thing in the limelight. It's uh, it's a, it's a strange kind of nexus, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, the book kind of kicks off with a man um, about to go and do what he loves to do and the adrenaline of that moment before things begin. And that kind of um, has a nice little twist later on in the book. But, you know, it takes a lot to go out on stage and it takes a lot to write a book. Um, if you watch a film by a filmmaker, that's them. You know, every story's been told except the way you see it and you experience it. Um, and and I give everything in my art when I'm on stage. I I, I will die for the audience, you know. And when I write a, a book, I dig deep and I don't leave anything behind and I try to be um, as honest as possible. And, and, and the authenticity uh, through art is what communicates. The more personal and the more brutally honest and raw you are, the more hilarious it is because it's coming from some deep acknowledgement of human truth. And out there on the field, it's really, there's so much sacrifice. And and also there's the hysteria of fame and the noise. And when that all goes away, who are we? And you see these football players in their 40s and the kids are in school or they didn't have the kids and suddenly their bodies are purposeless. And what do they do now? You know, from the age of four, they've been fed. They haven't had to learn how to go to the post office. They don't know what a bank account is. You know, they've just had life, you know, handed to them. And all of a sudden they've got to go into the world and work out the complexities of relationships and businesses and survival whilst dealing with this body that's broken down. And so I thought it was an, a kind of an amazing opportunity to talk about a second chance. Yeah, I- I'm I'm trying to remember. I'm I'm not sure whether it was Peter himself or or one of his mates who, who muses on this idea of 
of the golden 40s or, or early 50s even, <laughs> this kind of era in your life where um, for these blokes, they've done what they're going to do and they've got this sweet bit of time where there's money in the bank and they're, they're still fit enough and smart enough to get about in the world, um, but they've, they've done what they're going to do. So they, they, they can just um, be at peace with their, their successes and their failures and just live it up. Uh, yeah. But it's also a really hard age, isn't it? You've got to come to grips with a lot, as you, as you kind of allude to. Yeah, there's a lot of um, pain and regret in there and, and there's also a lot of physical stuff and mental stuff and, um, and you can kind of either choose the, the, the alleyway of, um, of self-medicating, which is what Peter Lum mm. does. You know, he gets up, he has his soft sand jog um, and then he goes to work and shifts some bags and shifts some planes around. And then it's pretty much to the Casbah with his three mates and tip in somewhere between four and 14 schooners, depending on how the punt goes and get home and try to hide it from the missus and lean into a few reds, have a few darts out on the balcony. And that's a day, that's a Monday. Um, and, yeah. and they're just kind of getting by, but yeah, it is this kind of, you know, I think it's squeaky that talks about this kind of golden um, tunnel and, you know, it's after the sniper section where you get an you get an Ill, mystery illness that nearly kills you, and if you make it out of that in your forties and fifties, you can kind of suck piss with your mates, and no one's putting any pressure on you. Um, and for these guys, it's great and go on golf trips to Thailand. No one has to know what happens, um, and they have each other. But underneath it, as it is with men, you know what's not spoken about is that they really fucking need each other because they're all scared and lonely and they don't know what they're doing with their lives. And, you know, half of them, one of them's got a huge coke, cocaine problem. The other one's marriage has fallen apart. The other one's brain has fallen apart. And the other one um, is in the closet. Um, you know what I mean? So they, they kind of need each other so they don't have to deal with the stuff that's, you know, you know, rising up to the circuit surface at not at a rate of knots. <laughs> Yeah, it it was really interesting for me to 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 experience Plum in that environment, you know, in the in the back of a sports bar, just just kind of doing laps between the beer garden and the TAB, um, uh, you know, with with the races on and just music and and beer and ciggies and as you say, other substances um, at a rate of knots. <laughs> Uh, for, for me, that's, that's always, you know, like I'm from Western Sydney. I like, I know that environment, but it's really yeah. uncomfortable for me. But for these blokes, <laughs> it's, it's their Valhalla and it's their refuge from it all. It is. I think it's triggering if you were comfortable there and triggering if you weren't, um, because it, <laughs> you know, it, it very much references, um, an inherent, uh, part of suburban Australia that you could pretty much take that that high table and the four guys around it and just move it from tavern to tavern um, and there are those blokes there and whether they were the bullies in school or not or what um, or the heroes more often than not the heroes at school but there's um, you know and they all have that same face on them and and in, inherently they're good people um, and these guys are good people and they've got each other's back, but 
they um, they're, they're drinking away uh, the pain of yesterday's heroics, you know, and the and the and the and the mistakes they made in relationships and things like that. But um, they also have this beautiful effortless banter with each other um, that they need, you know, that is the lifeblood of their life. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm of two minds of, of, of this next question. Um, you know, this, this guy, Peter Lum, he's an NRL star, but he's, he's also a Cronulla NRL star. And I'm wondering, is there, is there a, a real, real difference to rugby in that particular little insular island of Sydney um, as, as opposed to being a, a, a NRL star for Panthers or Souths or Manly or wherever else, uh, is, is Cronulla its, its own world? Absolutely. I mean, the Shire through history has very much um, suggested itself as a place where if you're out, you're out, but if you're in, you're in and we'll protect you, you know, and um, Souths has its own brand of fans and so does the West, you know, out in the Western suburbs. Um, Penrith, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit tougher out there, you know, there's no Cronulla Beach. Um, and it, But in Cronulla, it's very parochial and, and we hold our heroes up very proudly um and he you can basically stand in the taverns and just live off the reverie for the rest of your life you know as and and you know rugby the term rugby usually pertains to union um league is kind of a league hero is what they call a rugby league player um so as a league hero you're a god there is no higher you're bigger than the police you're bigger than if Elle McPherson or Michael Clark or Sam Burgess, you know, like he is the God of the Shire. Um, and, and he would be able to go and drink for free. Uh, like I guess Paul Gallen kind of does and be in every restaurant for a photo and all that stuff. Um, and just basically every day is a ticker tape parade for you. But the thing is it's over, you know, it's, yeah. it's over. It's fucking over. You know, the band is split up. It's not happening anymore. So what is your life where for the next 40 years you're just walking around town drinking and eating for free in restaurants, talking about something that's past? What is your identity? And and Plum really struggles with that. He doesn't want that. He actually detests people waving at him and, you know, and giving him advice and all that kind of stuff. He just wants to be on his own. Um, and he knows he has a sense of impending doom. And on top of that, he's had a diagnosis that he might fucking die unless he changes the way he lives or get dementia, which he thinks he's getting anyway, because he can't remember anything, even his son's name. Um, and he's having these visions of blokes called Charles and Sylvia and stuff who will come to visit him with all this weird philosophy. The bloke is going through a pretty mad spot um, and never has he wanted to be more alone. But what he's forced to kind of recognise is that you can't do this alone. And, and that's what the book kind of suggests is that the new idea of masculinity and bravery is to put up your hand and reach out instead of never take a backward step, which is what his dad taught him. Yeah. And 
the unlikely edification of Peter Lum comes from characters who I would just not associate with the Shire, um, both, you know, spectral and real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, may, maybe starting with the living, <laughs> you know, who, who, who's, um, who's Peter going to encounter in this novel? And then we'll move on to the dead. Well, you know, I'm from the Shire and a lot of my best mates are from the Shire and my uncle who, um, you know, a lot of, he, he works at the airport. Um, and so a lot of these blokes are in my life and a lot of these blokes are some of the most interesting, beautiful, family, intelligent, um, free-thinking men um, I've ever met. And, you know, the Shire gets a bad name um, for certain events and so it should, but there's some awesome individuals down there. And what's refreshing about it is like my best mate, Ben Cody and, and Tony Hayes, my, my uncle, and you can have a chat with them and they don't give a fuck what people think of what they think. Um, and that's what's awesome about Cronulla is that they have opinions that are so much more radical than anyone um, north of Tom Ugly's Bridge who is suddenly deeply concerned with hurting people's feelings because of what are they what they think or how it might sound in a tweet or whether they'll get cancelled for it or how it rolls in the greater tapestry of the collective conscience. Um, and so it's exciting to talk to people um, these days whose uh, thinking uh, has no nothing to bounce off and, and it's free-minded and it's the opposite of prejudice. Um, and it's wonderful. And they, they're the kind of uh, characters that are in Plum. Are these guys, they're, they're endlessly curious. And footy players are like that. Like, footy, pl footy players are so caring, good blokes and really curious. And, you know, all the footy players that are getting behind this book and they want to read it. They might, they probably haven't read anything since Tiger Woods's biography three years or something, you know, or a war book or something. But there's curiosity and care and they do stupid things because they're not equipped for it or they get too stressed or in Plum's case, the world is getting too big for them and they don't have a language and they don't have real life skills to deal with the storms that are being thrown in us that other people might have done a whole bunch of therapy or recovery or reading or university on or dated somebody who's got more kind of real life skills and has done the work, this stuff's just beyond them. So then they act out. And that's what we want to watch. That's what we want to read is behaviour. But in Cronulla, um, you know, Peter Lum starts talking to uh, an ex-boxing Nigerian priest um, and alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. Um, he starts training a... Um, Polynesian teenage girl called Chloe, who doesn't know he's famous, um, but he starts helping her out at the soccer club across the road. Uh, you know, he, he meets this man, Trent, who's a billionaire living in Lilypilly, who has his own kind of identity crisis going on, um, who ends up, you know, having a connection with one of his friends. And, and these people who are also going through massive changes and massive struggles or who have um, start to inspire him, including a woman with a disability called Bridget, who's an English girl who um, he spots 
working security at a pub because he can't work at the airport anymore, spots her reciting a poem at a poetry night called Lost for Words called Swap With Me, I'll Swap With You about how we all have the same amount of pain. And if you swap me, my pain with your pain, would you? And it blows his mind. And she hands him a little green book and says, write a poem, you're a poet. Um, and that trickles, you know, that, that's, that causes a ripple effect for the rest of his life. And these people are like living angels um, who just come in and but they spot something in Plum. He's not just a blank-eyed thug. He's not passive-aggressive. He's not dead to the world. He's curious and he's lost. And poets can see that because that's their perpetual state is curious and lost, actively curious and lost, like the great Prince of Denmark, Hamlet, you know, and he prevaricating actively is a beautiful state uh, for a poet to be in. And little by little, he lets them infect his life in a good way. And uh, it's not just these living angels. He, he also has a bunch of dead American poets. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like as if that's not enough of a story. Like you've you've got you've you've got you've got this incredible bloke uh, with all these struggles, these mates, this family, and then he gets invaded by the ghost of Charles Bukowski and Sylvia Plath and more. So, yeah, you know, just when when did that was that was that decision always in there was that the novel from the start or did you know or were you sort of plodding along in the writing and go you know what would be great right now <laughs> like, how does it work we did it what what was it like as a reader experience was it shocking or um natural well i was i was hinted i was hinted to some oncoming ghosts uh uh at at the kind of outset of of reading this book so um I was, I was, I kind of leapt into this novel, Brendan, like looking for that, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, Brendan yeah, Cowell's yeah. going to write about Charles Bukowski. <laughs> let's, let's see what he's got. Um, uh, but what, <laughs> what I was uh, surprised to find is, is how much I, I, I take interest in the world of Peter Lum and the world of Cronulla <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and the, and the ex rugby league star, like the, you know, we've we've been fed this stereotype of the Australian gladiator, and you've taken us behind that. And not only that, you've then just kind of woven in some ghosts. <laughs> so. um, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was on the um, the RN uh, weekend of books, and um, because uh, Stephanie who who said, um, you know, when I read that, I thought this could be really naff, but it wasn't. Yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> and I thought, well, one, thank question you, to two, answer. thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess for me, it always seemed to make sense. Um, and that was always, I wanted a really strong juxtaposition for this book. I didn't want to just do a naturalistic tale about, a rugged old bloke and his struggles, you know, and if I'm going to write something, I want to push it. And if I, I'll happily fall on my sword. And I want, I, I wanted to play with the brain um, as a sphere in which to tell a story. And we are inside the plum, which is the soft, uh, you know, fleshy, 
in you know kind of endangered space of Peter Lum's mind, and because of the epileptic fit and as a you know from, that's caused by the thousand head knocks, the corridors of Peter Lum's brain are flung open. And from my research and talking to guys like Andrew Johns and um, an array of other players, there's a real return to innocence and sometimes um, a very magical realism kind of call out. Um, you know, to the depths, to the angels, to the next world. There's something very, very otherworldly about uh, seizures um, where, you know, players like Ian Roberts and Andrew Johns often talked about hymns being played and your mother being there and angels and return to innocence. And I started to think of the concussions as an, a, a beautiful, naive, angelic way of accessing other worlds um, and I wanted him to be healed by poetry because writing this book for me was returning to why the hell I wrote. You know, I was doing well with my acting career, but I'm a writer and I thought, well, I'm not going to write something for money. I want to write something for me that's important. And it was poetry. And I thought, who's the last bloke on earth that would be healed by poetry? And Peter Lum um, came to life. But the, 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 the entry of the poets was because his mind is open. And anyone can walk in like a theatre um, at any day, any, any day, anything could happen. And it just blows this whole book um, up into the air in terms of its possibilities. And that's where Peter Lum's at. And also, you know, like Charles Bukowski helps him out when he's down and out um, in Parramatta. After seeing his son play rugby league and get bashed up, he starts to realise the dangers of the game he gave his life to. Bukowski, you know, when, when Plum starts to get into issues with his dad and, and women, Bukowski's like, look, man, I, I can't help you with that stuff. I'm going to have to send in Sylvia, <laughs> you know? So the, it's like these, it's like these poets, are these little ghosts that help people um, in limbos, um, in near death limbos, in purgatories um, down on earth. Um, and and they, they talk to each other and they're like a little squad that goes around. And I think that's kind of what poetry is in a lot of ways. And, you know, what happens at funerals and weddings? Poems are read out, you know, or poem, poems come in to make sense of the world. You know, I, there was that great um, thing that was posted by Ethan Hawke about people say they're not into the arts and music and poetry. Well, what do you do at your wedding and your funeral to make sense of stuff you don't understand? You come to a, an E.E. E. Cummings or you come to a T.S. Eliot or you come to your favourite poem when you were a kid. And, and I wanted to kind of remind those people that don't believe in literature and poetry that Kanye West and Eminem that you listen to every morning is poetry. Twitter is poetry. You know, everything that you're looking at is poetry. The way people speak and tweet and whatever is poetry that, and poetry has always been making sense of your life, if only you could see it more clearly. And maybe this book could help people see that poetry actually is the thing that makes us understand what the hell we're doing here on this earth. Um, and, and that's what Peter Lum comes to terms with. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And, yeah, it, it, you know, for me as a reader, it kind of... Uh, teased out in my mind what poetry could do and, and what it could mean for different people. You know, I, yeah. I, I only ever kind of read and listen to the stuff with a very introspective um, 
view. It's it's kind of it's how we interact with we're, we're taught we're supposed to interact with literature, um, but you kind of tease that out and you 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 twist it and you turn it on its head and uh, it's really something exciting to read. Uh, you mentioned Gavin uh, and the and the scene uh, out at uh, Homebush. Uh, seeing Gavin play and, or was it Parramatta? I forget. Um, uh, but the point is, I, I really wanted to ask you, uh, what's, what's life like for the child or the, what's, what's young adulthood like for the child of a former star, someone like Peter Lum? Yeah, well, Gavin, Gavin Lum kind of grew up idolising his father, um, as we do with our dads. You know, dads are heroes and we spend our life going, hey, Dad, watch this. I just built this. I just threw this. I just caught the ball. I just swam, you know, and, and Gavin's like that. But also his dad's, you know, one of the greatest athletes in the country. Um, and he just wants to be like him. Uh, he's a very different player. He's more of an athletic player. He's a 5'8". He's a playmaker and he's, and he's got speed. Um, he's tall and lanky. Um, but... At that age, 14, 15, which I remember with my dad, you suddenly start to say, oh, hang on, dad drinks too much or dad gets a bit cranky sometimes or dad gets sad or dad, dad made an excuse not to do the lawns. Um, and you start to go, oh, hang on, dad's human, dad's flawed. And suddenly the kind of hero uh, image and the hero worship changes where you start to normalise your parents. Um, and they and you start to see them as flawed human beings, and it's this weird transition into teenage life. But they have a really good friendship. Um, but the issue that Gavin is faced with, and you know, I kind of wanted to flip it because in a lot of literature we read at the moment in movies and TV, that you know, there's always the tortured teens who are vaping and taking MDMA privately, and they're all fucked up and semi-suicidal. And Peter Lum's the one who's tortured and going through an issue. Gavin and his girlfriend Ainsley, they just love getting fit and they're really positive and they're really healthy and they own what they do. And they are, you know, and and Gavin and Peter kind of learns from his son because when when Gavin has huge ordeals with his girlfriend, he lets time heal and he just doesn't dump her and run off like Peter does. Peter, Peter runs from burning fires his whole life. He he creates them and he runs from them. Um, presses delete on the desktop drinks 20 beers, moves on to the next game like he did on the footy field. And he actually learns from his son how to give things a second chance and be patient, you know. And in a lot of ways, Gavin is more mature, more emotionally mature than his father. But as his father starts to learn the inherent dangers of a life spent on the rugby league field, meaning you're basically sacrificing your mental well-being after you retire, um, Gavin fearlessly wants to become a professional and Peter Lum is in a very difficult ultimatum whether to support that. Um, and that is the cause um, of a major rift between father and son who are as close as anything. And Peter's dad wasn't there for him. He, he was there and then he wasn't. And Peter has to, um, you know, and it's an age-old story, the sins of the father passed on to the son. But Peter has to decide whether he's going to be um, a descendant of a distant father, Albert, or if he's going to turn up for his son. And it hurts. It hurts to be a man. 
Um, and Peter really struggles to be the dad he wants to be because it takes fucking effort. Yes, you you um you definitely illustrate that that difficulty um, for the part of Peter. Um, one more thing I I must ask you about. You've alluded to the long shadow of addiction and depression and and mental health on not just you know uh, these rugby players, but but just on the Australian male. Um, but what about women? What, what about Peter's relationship with the opposite sex? How is that? How is that? I love these plain questions because um, <laughs> usually, usually... I'll leave the talking really, to you. you. You use these, you, you really intelligent, academic, well-read uh, journalist types ask these really long questions that make me so impressed with how much you've read. <laughs> And, um, and then I just give a plain answer, but I, I love the plainness of your questions. Good. Um, it's very plumb, straight to it. Uh, am I avoiding the question here? So women and plumb, I would say is a four prong, there's, it's a four pronged answer. Um, and I would say that the secret to this book is that um, plumb's emergence as a man uh, comes through the way he addresses his relationships with four women. Um, one of those women uh, is his ex-wife, Renee, um, who proudly is called his next of kin and reminds him um, that she was next of kin on the hospital form. And um, they can't stand each other. They can't live without each other. Um, and Peter would probably die for her. Um, and they've got so much carnage left behind them. They're arguing over a son. They're still attracted to each other. They're jealous of each other. Um, and they have to help each other grow up in this book. Charmaine, his current girlfriend, um, South African-born um, nutritionist, he just can't seem to work out how to please her. Um, and I think Peter learns that it's probably easier than, it's ma than he's making out it to be. All he needs to do is drop his big, strong guard, be honest with her and take her on the journey with him. Um, the third one would be Sylvia Platt, I'd say, who comes into his life and kind of they, they cohabitate for a while. They, um, they do a bit of share house kind of university living, mm. drinking wine and hanging on the steps, vaping and um, talking about their dads. They write letters to people in their life and, Sylvia Blath kind of takes him on a journey, a real, a real arts degree journey of the self. And then um, there's this woman, Bridget, um, the British girl with a disability who um, kind of puts a pen in his hand and challenges him to be a poet and um, kind of blows his mind. And also she becomes a friend of his. And Peter Lum and guys like Peter Lum, they don't often have strong friendships with women. Um, there's also a woman called uh, Dana Crichton, who's a journalist who holds the balance of power in terms of an emerging scandal about Peter Lum that's in the background. Um, that's another pressure on him that he's about to be outed as, as quite a despicable man. Um, but I think it's with those four women that um, Peter has the chance to evolve via what he can learn from his relationships with those four women, yeah. There's, there's so much to it. Um, 
and oh, there's man. a lot that I think I think will will challenge the reader. Um, and there's yeah, there's as I said, there's it, there's obviously so much to enjoy. Uh, you mentioned that you know you're not you weren't writing this for the money. You were you were writing this to kind of uh, discover something new and make something new. What do you hope to achieve with this novel? Yeah, well, I think you know I wrote it in lockdown in London. And the idea was it would be a TV show. But when the world stopped, it just felt so literary. And I wondered if I could really find the depth of the idea and the man through a TV show initially that I could in a book. And one of my best mates, Fiona Series, who I wrote Love My Way With, she said, mate, you're so good with those words. It's a book. Just stop and write this book. And... I held hands with Peter Lum for five months in my basement flat in Notting Hill. I got COVID. I had a breakup. I was so fucking sad. I thought I was going to die. I thought about dying. Um, you know, I, I, I was about a year sober. I was fucking growing old. I was getting lonely. I was so sick. I couldn't breathe. Peter Lum came to life. I saved his life. He saved mine. And there's no poetry in that. That's just the truth. Um, from like May to September of that year, Peter Lum and I danced together and held each other. And I knew I was onto something special because I was crying at the end of chapters. I was crying at sentences where he watched Chloe put in effort or, you know, he got a text from his son from Bali and or an email. I'd write an email from his son from Bali and I'd start weeping. I'm nearly crying now. You know, and I haven't had the easiest journey with my father and all this stuff. I just, I was proud of myself for what I'd done. I'd turned my life around a bit and I was going through a tough struggle and I helped Peter Lum with his and he helped me with mine. And it was just the best bromance I've ever had, I think. Um, and I wanted to help Peter Lum come good. And I think Peter Lum, the plum, could help connect others because connection is everything and especially in this time times are by a thousand with lockdowns and pandemics and quarantine connection is everything we have to double our effort with each other um are you okay day is every day you know and phone calls need to be made not just texts and and if you're fucking struggling it's not brave to do it on your own it's brave to make 10 phone calls and call someone who you maybe haven't met who's going through what you're going through, um, you know, and, and that's the message. If Peter Lum can do it, so can we. And so I, I'd love him to be a crusader for connection. No, there's nothing religious, spiritual or money to be made. It's just Peter Lum could help all of us um, see that connection is the only way out. Um, from the dark tunnel of the self, you know. I couldn't think of a better place to end this. That was beautiful. Brendan Cowell, Crusader for Connection, thank you for being on the Booktober podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Great chat, mate. Uh, Plum is published by Fourth Estate. Uh, it's available right now from booktopia.com.au. And if anything we talked about, uh, in the podcast uh, brought up something with you and you need to reach out and talk to someone, um, do it. Uh, 
uh, number you can call in Australia is Lifeline. It's a free call 13 11 14. That number again is 13 11 14. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au